The Money Show. Other people's money. There's no one more focused in recent years on other people's money than Dennis Davis, now retired from the bench, and he's joining SARS as a consultant, bringing you his expertise as a member many years ago on the Cats Commission, more recently on the Davis Tax Committee to help SARS up its game. Um, and, and Dennis Davis, it's good to have you with us this evening on Other People's Money because you are changing life, so to speak, to focus on literally other people's money as a consultant to the South African Revenue service um, out of the frying pan and into the fire so to speak <laughs> you put it like that Bruce. I'm going to have all sorts of people running to my house and protesting um, <laughs> all I'm going to do is make sure that uh, uh, helping SARS uh, on its way which it's already doing on its way to recovery um, hopefully making sure that everybody pays their fair share and this is the thing. I mean, it's about fair share. It's. I mean, there are some people, and I'll, I'll read you an email in a bit uh, from somebody who believes you just are to 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 screw the rich um, and and to try and find ways to take more money from those who already do pay their taxes. But I think, having chatted to you many times in the past, you have a very strong philosophy of ensuring that people pay what is due. It's the old biblical phrase of "pay to Caesar what's due unto Caesar." Yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh, Bruce, I mean, uh, you know, I know I get this as well. People come in and say, all you want to do is to penalize the rich. Well, the answer is no, um, uh, not at all. Um, uh, and I'm not suggesting it's only the rich uh, who probably don't pay their taxes, or by and large, it is, though, I mean, on, on the sense that, and we're not just talking, I think we need to focus our, our lens somewhat broader here because, because when we talk about the rich, I think equally in maybe even more important is the old old Capone strategy, that those people who've taken other people's money, meaning you and my money and everybody else is listening, namely the taxpayers' money, they should be held accountable. And I remain convinced that the tax system is the best way to, to hold them accountable. When we, I mean, we we did a, we had a chat the other day, and a man called yeah. Alton um, was dialed into our recent webinar, and, and you and I, and I want to quote from the email and what he said. He said the judge sounded as though any ideas would be short lived, and it was really a matter of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic in order to stem the tide, or should I say, the tsunami? The economy is in tatters, and no amount of taxing the rich or trying to rope in the defaulters will ever be enough to balance the budget. What's your response? Because I think we have a lot of people who are so negative about the future right now um, that any effort to try and right the wrongs of the past is going to be sneered at. Well, I think in the conversation that you and I had uh, and in conversations we've had over the past, I think that is true, that uh, you can't just look at one side of the equation, that the that the economy as a, as a whole and the state as a mechanism to deliver on a whole range of aspects which are critical to that economy, those, if they're not broken, they're in very serious disrepair. And and the person who wrote that email to you would be correct. You, you're not simply by collecting vastly some increased sums of money on its own without a capable state is not going to do the job. And by the way, you aren't going to collect a huge sum of additional money, even if you do plug the gap, unless the economy grows, in which case you will get more tax. So they're all interrelated. And I understand perfectly that tax morality has declined in South Africa radically because of levels of corruption, because of the daily allegations that are exposed on the Zondo Commission, when it's not having its premises robbed, 
and um, <laughs> and and in effect, in effect, um, therefore, until such time as people are convinced that the state spends the money it collects for the purposes which it is designed, we will continue to have this problem. And until such time as the state actually reconfigures to be as capable as it possibly can be, we're going to struggle to get this economy right. And all of those are interrelated points. So I'm not going to disagree entirely with him. Mm. But um, doesn't yeah. mean, sorry, that, that doesn't mean, Bruce, that just because, um, you know, somebody is, is stealing a bit of money that the rest of us are off the hook. Because for the vast majority of South Africans who pay PAYE and VAT, they're paying their fair share. Uh, and yes, absolutely. I mean, I, for a moment there, I wondered if you were having some empathy with people who felt justified in, in a tax revolt. I mean, is there ever an excuse in any society to embark on a tax revolt of any kind to ask tonight's most There may question? be. I mean, there may be. I think in evil societies, the answer is correct. And we know that Bertrand Russell, for example, refused to pay his tax because he was against the war. And who am I to argue against Bertrand Russell? But I think in a country like South Africa, where our problems are not those, that our problems are a country trying to resurrect itself, uh, in part through an unbelievably awful history uh, of 300 years, and and in a somewhat <laughs> dreadful last 10 years or 10 years uh, 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 and, and, and during the Zoom. Um, I think trying to turn it around and trying to get institutions like SARS and others, NPA, correct, which people are trying to do at present, that deserves support. We, we're all in this boat together. I mean, if we all refuse to pay tax, all that would occur would be a greater level of anarchy and danger in the streets, and we'd have a far worse situation than we have at present. It's a crazy idea. Mm. Um when we, we look at South Africa's democracy and the huge strides and enormous progress that was made from 1994 all the way through till 2009, till the global financial crisis, which coincides um, with the start of the Zoom administration and at some point in that in that mix um, was the, the, the widespread theft of the state and what we now call state capture. But those, those first 15 years of our democracy saw South Africa return to investment grade, saw South Africa's balance of payments improve, saw tax rates being slashed because tax collections improved, saw the economy widen, saw economic growth. It showed it was possible from a bankrupt state that the Nats handed over to the ANC. Huge progress was made um, and is shown to be possible to be made. And it's something that I get quite irate about when people get you know, sort of hyper-negative about the future. I agree with you. And, you know, uh, I'm old enough to remember, you know, the, the racism that, that dominated our society prior to democracy, in which it was suggested, you know, that, that well, you know, hand over the government to majority of black people and it'll just all collapse. And you're dead right that I remember being very much in the room in the early 90s when we had these transitional councils in which uh, the old regime had to sort of hand over the books to the ANC. And I remember being with Tito Mwene and and Trevor Manuel and others when it, 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 the state of the economy was explained to us in about 92, and we walked out absolutely shaken, not realizing just how dreadful it being, what an unbelievable mess they'd made. And you are dead right in that first decade of more of, more of, of, a, of, of, of this government or the Mandela government, it is extraordinary what happened. And that's why I remain hopeful 
and 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 I, I certainly my hope has increased as I've been consulting at SARS and seeing the dedicated people there, really unbelievably dedicated, hardworking, and wonderfully talented people who now that they've got a leader who embraces them are really on the right path. And they're a microcosm of what can happen if we all just could, in a sense, get beyond the, 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 the kind of effects of the last 10 years. Coming up in a moment, Dennis Davis on his money, uh, on whether he invests money, whether he's got any bad personal money habits. We'll see what truths we can extract, Dennis <laughs> Davis, uh, former Judge Dennis Davis, uh, who is joining SARS as a consultant. Uh, we'll talk to him in more in a moment. The Money Show. Other people's money. So, Dennis Davis, let me be blunt. I mean, do judges retire with a big fat pot of public sector pension money? Uh, how does that work? We get a very generous pension. There can be no doubt about that, Bruce, uh, because the salary that we earned literally on the last day continues uh, for the rest of your life um, on a, on, as a pension. So in other words, you just carry on getting the same salary that you got beforehand. It's 100%. It is a very generous pension. There can be no doubt about that. And, I, and uh, yeah, um, it, it, it's a trade-off, of course, because if you think about it, what judges are earning as their gross salaries, far less than they would if they continued to practice at the bar or the sidebar or, or any other similar endeavor. But they do cash in at the end uh, with, a, with a, a very, very generous pension. Okay, I mean, that's I, I just I was curious about it because I had heard this and it's good to hear it yeah, uh, no, from, no, from, from the horse's mouth. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it is um, yeah. I mean, and so you, have you then through your career put money away? Have you invested money? Have you put money well, aside very to li- supplement li- Because I didn't... Well, you see, you've got it. You've got it. My trajectory is one of being pathetic disregard of money. Um, you see, most of my life I was an academic lawyer. Um, in the early 1980s, um, my wife was very friendly with a man called Errol Grauman, who you'll know he was the founder of Investec Bank together with Ian Cantor. They offered me a job. They offered me a very good job. And uh, this was before Investec became a public company. And I should have joined them if I was sensible about money because I would have made a hell of a lot of it. I didn't. I carried on. I did consult for them, but I carried on as a, an academic. So I really, it was only really in the last sort of seven or eight years before I became a judge where I started making some decent money because my tax practice expanded uh, and I had other work doing at the same time. And so, uh, uh, you know, suddenly I became a judge and uh, my salary declined massively from what I'd been earning previously, but it wasn't enough to save huge sums of money. So I've got a relatively, I would say, um, by by, by the, my compatriots sort of standards, a pretty pathetic uh, amount invested. But I can't complain because compared to most, it's pretty reasonable. So, no, I've never been particularly good about money. It never really interested me, save in that academic sense, if you wish, or as you say, worrying about other people's money. Um, so, I mean, did you then become a judge in order to play catch up? Was it part of the, the motivation? Did you just think just a No, I never, wanted to be a ju- I never wanted to be oh. a judge, Bruce. I want to tell you, I was incredibly happy uh, with where I was. I had a wonderful um, uh, portfolio of jobs. I was a professor. I was doing my television programs at the time. Um, I had a, a, a cons- a sort of agreements with a couple of very large law firms that briefed me in tax matters. I was making, for the first time in my life, uh, a proper money, not just a straight academic salary. And uh, I had really interesting work. I became a judge because Isma Muhammad, the Chief Justice, wouldn't, who was my dear friend, wouldn't leave me alone. 
And I have written an article about being the rotation judge. I never, I didn't think I had the temperament for it. I didn't want to be one. And in fact, when Gerald Friedman was the judge president of the Western Cape, a magnificent judge president who was really my judicial mentor, um, I'd acted there in 96. And when I finished acting, I was so flattered. It's sort of the greatest compliment I'd ever had when great Gerald Friedman offered me a, a saying, would you apply to be a judge full-time and I'd support you? Uh, and I agreed. And then overnight, I had a sleepless night and refused. I really never wanted to be. Um, and uh, from a financial point of view, it's crazy. And from all sorts of other points of view, it has stresses that I really never contemplated. But Mohammed was absolutely insistent. And eventually, I just said yes. Uh, and do you, do you regret it? I mean, you look back at that choice now um, and, uh, and you look at the, the financial consequences of that decision. You look at the um, lifestyle consequences, the health consequences, whatever those might be. Um, do you look back on that and say, actually, I'm glad I did it? Or do you sort of say, I, I shouldn't have allowed myself to be bullied by my friend? <laughs> I, I've, uh, Bruce, I've gone through periods when I thought this is crazy. Why did I want this? It's had all sorts of stresses um, and strains of the kind that, that, that are really hard to deal with. But, you know, it is a job which is quite remarkable. I know that all sorts of people, um, you know, look at the highest courts and, and see the judges there and you know, get sort of intellectual admiration for the work they do. But, you know, it's in the simple things that often you get the most joy. The simple point of actually dealing with a custody case and getting it right and essentially saving the lives of a family uh, and, 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 and children, uh, for, for example. Mm. That, or dealing with cases where housing, people are, 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 are suffering, they've been evicted and you can, you can do something to change the lives of people. That's not something that happens to everybody every day. And for me, those are hugely meaningful. That's what's kept me going as far as I'm concerned. And then the motivation for joining SARS. I mean, you have a pension. Um, I guess you're supplementing your income. That'll be nice to do. Um, but, I mean, is, is money the motivator or is it another sense of national duty? Well, since, I, since with me, you know, we live in a, a, in a pretty modest house. My friends keep on telling me I need to move out of Milnerton because it's not a great suburb. It's perfectly fine for me, but that's what I'm told. Um, and it's certainly not a fancy place. And I spend most of my money on CDs and books, uh, you know, and I have to On CDs? Where do you find CDs? Oh, I'm an old-fashioned guy. I find CDs. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, and books, you know, just far too many uh, to tell. Um, and frankly, if I could, you know, before um, COVID-19, you know, the, the annual trip overseas and hearing some wonderful orchestral and jazz music from great orchestras and jazz musicians around the world. That, for me, is all I need my money for. Um, why did I join SARS? Because actually, I really felt at the end of the day, I'd had long conversations with Ed Kisveto, who I have a great deal of admiration for, and I thought, you know, let me put my money where my mouth is and, and, and actually go there and see if I can make a contribution uh, to SARS um, and not just simply retire by doing what... I had enough to do. I mean, I still do a lot of... Um, pro bono teaching at, at, at WITS and at UCT and at UWC. And I continue to teach um, on an honorary basis throughout my judicial career at the University of Cape Town, which of course gives great satisfaction when you see all these people who, who emerge out of the university, greatly talented people. In fact, I, mm. I, I'm very fat that I'm probably one of the few, I'm probably one unique thing I have as a judge. There are more 
of my students on the bench than anybody else in the valley. I think there are 10 in the Western Cape Court alone who I taught. So I, I, I thought, well, let me do that and let me see if I can make some contribution to the extent that I can to SARS. And frankly, I, I'm enjoying that. It, 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 you know, um, if you can get it, there's no point being in this country and just sitting on the sidelines no. of the grandstand. One's got to get on the playing field. Talk to me about those overseas trips. I mean, are you a big spender overseas? Do you travel modestly? No, but I, well, I mean, everything's expensive, as you know. Of course it is. But, you know, my, our traditional trip would be a nice walking trip in somewhere like Italy, because, I, you know, nothing like some Italian food and swimming in the Mediterranean. And then I would, uh, we, you know, and then at least a week or 10 days in London, in the National Theatre, and uh, going off to... Um, some of the great symphony orchestras. And I did teach a lot in the United States of America over my period. Uh, and there uh, I was privileged, of course, if you're in New York, you know, there's so much to do. Those are just absolutely fantastic. I really miss that. You know, the notion of going to Carnegie Hall or to the Lincoln Center or to one of those, uh, although I think Brits do better theater, but that stuff is just, ah, for me, it's like, you know, once or twice a year, it's a real fix. Uh, and so, I mean, that that's then you're going to be your, your sort of secret passion, I guess, the moment you get uh, a vaccine. I can tell um, you, as soon as, as soon as I got my vaccine and I'm regarded this, you know, I can do it. That's, you know, I can't wait. It's not to say, I want to say that I don't enjoy it. I desperately miss um, uh, going to my Thursday night orchestra, orchestral concerts in Cape Town and uh, having live performances or going to theatre at the Baxter or to, to films at yeah. the Lavia. I mean, dreadfully uh, uh, bad. But hopefully that'll all turn around. No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and and other personal habits. So CDs, books, and overseas trips for musical concerts, and every Thursday. Oh, and then and then, and of course, far too much watching of football, um, Bruce. I'm sorry. Uh, and if Manchester United do badly, it ruins my whole week. Uh, and you see, you've just you've just lost a legion of fans and gained some new ones, no doubt as well, because <laughs> there there is no grey yeah, sure. area with fans of Manchester United. But that's a, that's a that's a real passion of mine, and uh, I've been to Old Trafford a few times, which is absolutely fantastic. And so that that too is something I'd look forward to doing in the, in the future yet again. Judge Dennis Davis, do you always do you, do you stay being called Judge Dennis Davis? Um, do you keep the title? No, or are you I, like a, a retired I told soldier? You to call me I've told you to call me Dennis, Bruce. <laughs> no, but I'm just curious, Your Majesty. No, I mean, do you, do, you does are one keep told, the title? You are, you, are, you, you are once a judge, always a judge, meaning in the sense that the retired judges keep their title. But, you know, it, and it's quite odd, isn't it, that I find very often with people, even at SARS now, I say, please call me Dennis. My mother never called me judge. Um, and they don't, they, you know, they sort of think you have to. I don't quite know why. I mean, I mean, also the future, I suppose. I mean, you know, the, we, we love commissions in South Africa. You may be called upon to do those at some point yeah. in the future. And yeah. um, we know that those are long-term <laughs> commitments. Um, they don't have it, to be that long, but they are no. long, yes. I mean, and, and Zondo. I mean, we're learning so much from Zondo, but don't you wish it could end? It's like watching a bad film or reading a bad book. You just want it to stop. Well, that's the problem about commissions. You know, a friend of mine, a uh, theorist, said, you know, the thing about a commission is it becomes like a decommission. So you you, yeah. you you think it's kicked into touch for years on end before anything actually happens. and But I do think that Zonda is different, if I can just make this point. I think it has elucidated into the public domain a whole range of facts that the vast majority of the population were unaware of. And I think that's good. I think it's good for our democracy. And hopefully we can utilise the information we gather to full effect. Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Dennis Davis, thank you very much for joining us. Other people's money. One last point. You've got 12 seconds. You know what time timelines are like. Oh, I thought he was going to say something deep and meaningful. Oh, sorry, yeah, I, sorry, Bruce, I was just going to say, um, SARS, SARS, sorry about that. Um, I think SARS are also going to be very interested in what comes out of the Zondo Commission. Um, I still can maintain the Al Capone strategy. That's the way to get people accounted. I couldn't agree with you more. Al Capone was jailed, not for murder, uh, extortion, racketeering, all of these things. He was 